Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December the 2nd, 2021. It is currently 5.20 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live, and you know where I'm coming to you live from, the Empty Sanctuary, Victory Baptist Church, located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And it was in this very sanctuary that just a little, well, yeah, a little less than 24 hours ago, I was standing behind the pulpit that I'm looking at that's right there in front of me. I was standing, well, behind the pulpit, in front of the pulpit, because I, do, I don't really stay, stay stationary when I preach. I walk around the entire time. But here inside this sanctuary last night, we studied Isaiah chapter 7 because that's the text that we are studying this week for the Bible study exercise. So I I brought the Bible study exercise to the Wednesday evening service. And that Wednesday evening service went on for one hour and 20 minutes. Now, I know everything, everything about preaching that has ever been written would tell me that I did it completely wrong. And to be honest with you, when I got in the car... And I started driving home. You can ask my wife to verify this. I was not happy. I was very frustrated and very upset because I knew that I went way too long. Now, I am grateful that nobody in the church acted upset or bothered. In fact, when the sermon was over, they stuck around and still talked and was still trying to figure out some of the things we talked about in Isaiah chapter 7. So it's awesome to have a church where you go an hour and 20 minutes and people are not just storming out the door mad, like that was ridiculous, but actually stick around and continue to talk about the subject. So I am grateful for for that. I felt really, really bad though, because an hour and 20 minutes is, yeah, I mean, that's a little, that's a little long. That, that's a little excessive. And I was mad at myself because, what I should have done is I, part of me wanted to walk back through Isaiah chapter 7 to just add clarification, add details, making sure that we have everyone properly identified in Isaiah 7, trying to establish some level of a timeline so that we could try to figure out Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16, which reads, For before the child, is that Emmanuel? Or is that Isaiah's son, uh, Shear Jashub? Which child is this referring to? For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and to choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest, hey, the land that Ahaz abhorrest, which we think is a the idea of one land because it's the combination of Syria and Israel, that... Uh, the, the land the land that you that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings that they're going to lose both of their kings um and so when did that when does that occur when does that occur well many believe that was fulfilled just a couple of years after this and it would have been around the time Shear Jashub would have reached that age so then like is verse 16 referring to Shear Jashub trying to establish timeline establishing those dates is very critical so I, I felt the need to walk right back from chapter 7, verse 1, all the way down to verse 16, and I felt like that that was a little bit redundant. I even said at the beginning of the sermon that there was going to be some redundancy, but it took longer than I wanted. So then for me to really get down to verse 16 to bring up all of the issues and questions, 
The only way to make it happen is I was going to have to keep going and it got to an hour and 20 minutes and then I felt horrible that it went an hour and 20 minutes and I felt like now it's posted online, but who's going to listen to an hour and 20 minute long sermon? And then it was just frustration. So I, I hope that some way, some shape, some form that it benefits someone somewhere, maybe, hopefully. I don't know what value the sermon had to the people present here. I don't know. Um, it, I, I could I could be selfish and say, well, the sermon did me a lot of good because I got to walk through the whole section again. I got to walk through the whole section one more time. So it was beneficial to me. And uh, But in many ways, you don't preach a sermon. I think In the preparing of the sermon, it's fine for me to benefit. But in the preaching of the sermon, it's really for the benefit of those who are listening. And an hour and 20 minutes is probably too much. So I do apologize to anyone who looked at that and was like, man, he... He repeated himself too much, and we've already covered that. He didn't really advance it. It wasn't beneficial. You know, boo, I give it a one-star rating. Boo, okay. If you were doing that, hey, I understand. Boo, I give it a one-star rating as well. I was, put it this way, it made for a very frustrating drive home and a very frustrating night, and, and, I didn't even I I didn't even want to turn on the microphone today and talk about Isaiah 7 but I felt like I needed at least to offer that apology and hopefully I did not ruin our study this week. I thought I really have been pleased with our study this week because we've had more participation than we've probably ever had for a Bible study exercise. Uh, okay. <laughs> one I get a 1 out of 10 according according to someone listening. A 1 out of 10. That's that's pretty bad. That's that's pretty bad. One out of ten. Okay. Well, at least at least it wasn't a zero. But no, it, it made for a very my my wife was like, just yeah. I think my wife was ready to just like leave and say, you know what? I don't. You're 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 being irritating because I was very very upset. Um, it just sometimes that happens. Sometimes the sermon goes the like in my brain. We were gonna make it through all of that, and then we're gonna really dig into verse sixteen. But I felt like that I had to go back through it all to get us to verse 16 just to try to make sure, okay, here's this kingdom, here's this king, here's this country, okay, here's here's the people we're talking about, okay, here's some of the timeline, and well, it just didn't go the way I, I wanted it to. So hopefully it will be beneficial. So I we still didn't come up with a great answer uh, for, for verse 16. At the end, now after church, there was some discussion, and I'll just try to clarify this a little bit. All right. So Isaiah 7, 16, again, for those who, who if you've been listening, I, so I'm not going to repeat a lot right here because there's really just one major thing that I want to get across tonight. And I, I probably want to just get more of a spiritual lesson across here than anything else. I wanted to do this on Podbean, but we would have people coming in there who have no idea what's going on. So I'm just doing this for a our, our, our regular audience here on Spreaker and for all the people who typically listen. But let, let's go back through verse 16. Okay. So the big issue here is this, all right? God has said, okay, and let me just basically summarize. The, one of the big issues here is that we we clearly, I think we can indicate and prove that from history, from Bible dictionaries, from commentaries, from everything, and from, and from the Bible itself, that Ahaz had already in his mind was going to work with Assyria to deal with the threat that was coming at him 
from uh, Syria. He was going to work with the Assyrians uh, from the threat that was coming at him from uh, Syria and from Israel. All right. So he, he, w- he was going to look to Assyria. He was going to look to them. He's already been pro-Assyria. He's, he's looking to them. And, and Israel and Syria had formed a confederacy to stop the advance of Assyria, to say, no, we're not, we're not going to put up with the Assyrians anymore. And Ahaz would not join their confederacy. So now they're coming after him. In his mind, look, I need the Assyrians to help me out. I've been I've been pro their side, so I'm going to continue to 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 stay with them, and I'm not going to join them. So so in his mind, I've got to go with the Assyrians because I need them on my side, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm I'm going to take. They're going to help me with this threat. So when when God sends Isaiah to say, "Hey, look, don't, you don't have anything to fear. Don't worry. God's going to take care of it." And then God says, like, hey, I'll show you a sign. The reason Ahaz refuses, and I think we can clearly demonstrate this from the text, is not because he's spiritual. He's covering his, he's trying to wrap his his plan in a robe of fake righteousness. I'm not going to tempt God. No, you've already made up your mind. You're going to work with the Assyrians. That's what you're going to do. You've already got your plan and you're trying to cover up your plan with some kind of fake spirituality. I think we can all agree that that makes the most sense. So God's like, okay, fine. You don't want a sign? I'm going to give a sign anyway. And that's going to be a virgin is going to conceive, bear a son, and his name's going to be called Emmanuel. All right. And we know, according to Matthew, obviously Jesus fulfills this. Now, does it have any connection to that period of time? We would we wouldn't even have to. We could we could clearly just say, no, it doesn't have any connection to that period of time. Ahaz refused to sign. So God is going to offer a sign much later for the house of David, which will be the ultimate fulfillment of a king sitting on the throne, which is what he had promised the line of David and ultimately pointing to the Messiah. So we we could we could get around that and say, okay, Ahaz didn't want to sign. God's going to ultimately give a sign anyway, and it's going to come, you know, 700 plus years after this fact. Okay, fine. Everything's great. We can move on. Verses 17 and 25 is, okay, Ahaz, you want to turn to Assyria? Okay, you turn to Assyria. And now the, uh, the, ki- the king of Assyria is going to come upon you and destroy you, and there's going to be pain and suffering and death. So the one you're going to look to save you is going to be the one that ultimately causes you to suffer and inflicts pain and suffering upon you and the people. So you, you had, what you're looking to for salvation is not going to save you. It's ultimately going to destroy you. All right. And I know there's some major spiritual lessons there. So 17 and following, easy to understand easy to understand. Verse 16 is really where, to me, everything falls apart. And again, verse 16 is this. Let me read it again. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil, so before, if we say this is Emmanuel, before this child reaches an age to know evil, and we could get into some Jewish ideas, what, four years old, six years old, whenever, before he reaches this particular age, whatever age it is, relatively young, um, the land that you abhor, the land that you can't stand, and, and we think that this is referring to it as one land because it's Syria and Israel together, right? It's them together. And because it's them two together, it's referred to as one land. This land that you abhor, guess what? Before this child reaches this age, 
They're going to be forsaken of both her kings. They're going to be gone. They're going to be gone. And so, wait a minute. That seems to be something that's going to happen. And we know historically, relatively soon, within a couple of years. So that doesn't make sense that it refers to Emmanuel. That, that doesn't seem to make sense because that's not going to happen for 700-something years. So does this refer to then Isaiah's son, Shear Jashub? And if it does, how did we jump from Emmanuel back to Shear Jashub in the text and we don't seem to have any indication that it changes? Some say that the Hebrew there should be before this child, in other words, Isaiah seeming to be pointing at a child, his child that he brought with him, but there's a lot of speculation here. So what are our options dealing with verse 16? All right, a couple of options. Yes, the text goes from Emmanuel back to Shirar Jashub. Shirar Jashub is the one that's being talked about here, and it's referring to what's going to happen to Syria, the king of Syria, and the king of Israel in the next couple of years. And, it, and, and the Emmanuel prophecy has already been forgotten and moved on. You can make that argument. It just seems weird. So then do we say verse 15 is about Emmanuel or is verse 15 about Shirar Jashub, right? Like, how do, we, how do we understand 15, right? So it raises all kinds of questions, all right? So, so there's one possible answer that it, it just jumps and we don't, need to, we don't need to explain it. Some of the commentaries do that. Hey, hey no, this is Shirar Jashub. Don't even worry about it. Next. I don't know if it works, but it's a possibility. Second option is it refers to Shirar Jashub and it refers to Jesus. That Shirar Jashub, before he reaches this age, this is going to happen. But before Jesus reaches that age, the same thing is going to happen to once again, Syria and Israel. Well, the only problem with that is before Jesus is even born, Israel's long gone. Israel's gone, right? They don't have a king way before Jesus is born. Not, not by the time he reaches that age, way before he's born, Israel, that's gone. I mean, Israel's gone. So that doesn't make any sense. And in Syria did exist on the far reaches of the Roman Empire. And, and from what we could tell last night, we discussed this after church, uh, Herod was would have been in charge, so they wouldn't have had a king. But that just doesn't seem to make any sense. So how do how do we apply it to Jesus? Because that all happened before Jesus was even born, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. So I mean, Israel's going to be gone to the Assyrians not long after all of this. So that how I, there, it's almost impossible to apply it to Jesus. We we were trying to, to find a way to apply it to Jesus, but I just I don't know how you can ap- apply this to Jesus in any way, shape, or form. So first, it's Shirar Jashub. Two, it somehow refers to both. Referring it to both becomes very problematic. Three, we just don't have an answer. Now, whenever I say that in church, everyone laughs, <laughs> but because I I'm. I'm committed to that, that sometimes we just don't have an answer and nobody has come up with a great one. None of the commentaries come up with a great one, but it's just the, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I, I, I wish there was a way to go, look, verse 16, clearly it's, it's, it's a change in pronoun. It's clearly a change. 
I, I can't other than saying that the only way 16 makes sense is that Shirar Jashub. Based off the date that we think Shirar Jashub was born, based off the date that we think this prophecy occurred, um, thanks to Heather for her work on her timeline, thanks to others who also worked on timeline, thanks to the people in the church last night who was also trying to confirm dates, which we think we, we, we found other sources that confirmed the date Heather put in her timeline, we think that we can say, yeah, Shira Jephshib would have been very young at this point, and we do believe that those two kings are gone relatively soon. But we seem to have enough historical facts to back that up. I think we can say within three to four years, they're, they're, it's, they're, they're gone. So, and, 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 and Israel's going to be completely, I mean, they're, they're, once they go into Assyrian captivity, Israel's the northern kingdom never comes back out as the northern kingdom. So, and they don't ever have another king ruling and reigning over them. So that doesn't, <laughs> so it, it just seems it has to be Shear Jashim. But from a historical perspective, that's going to be where I'm, I'm, that's where I am dogmatically concluding now, but I am, <laughs> I am willing to acknowledge that I may not be so dogmatic about that even five minutes from now. So that, that's the best we can do. Again, 17 and following. So I'm going to just throw out, a, I'm going to throw out a, a one and hermeneutical principle. And then I'm just going to throw out a very spiritual principle that I really want you to think about and apply to yourself. All right. First, the hermeneutical principle. I don't think anyone would come along and argue that we interpret Isaiah chapter seven by not acknowledging that this is referring to real people real kingdoms, real nations, real kings, real invasions, real real military conflict, real, that all of this is literal and all of this is real, that the prophecies here are, when it says Assyria is going to come upon, hey, look, Ahaz, you, you, you want the Assyrians? You're going to get them. And they are going to make you suffer that all of this literally happens and we can read about it literally happening in kings and chronicles and and other and we we can we this all literally happens the reason i have to stress this again i would just challenge you get a matthew henry commentary right you can get it online for free and just start going through isaiah and reading matthew henry's commentary as you get into later parts of isaiah over and over and over again you're going to see these prophecies and then matthew henry's going to say that basically is fulfilled in the church. That is fulfilled in spiritual Israel, not national Israel. No, that's not them getting land. That land there is symbolic of power and influence, and that happens in the church. You're going to see him do that over and over and over and over and over and over again, and which then you have to argue, wait a minute, when did the hermeneutic change in the book of Isaiah? When did it go from literal Israel, literal nations, literal kings, literal prophecies with literal fulfillment to now it's not literal nations, it's not literal land, it's not literal fulfillment, it's all spiritual. When did it change? And I'm very familiar with that change as someone who used to hold to an mill eschatology. I, I, I became pretty adept at applying that kind of interpretation to much of Isaiah. Now, what I, I hope if you go back and listen, well, most of those sermons are nowhere to be found anymore. They're, I guess they're on the hard drive on the computer that's in the closet. 
down the hallway from me. Um, but on that computer hard drive, there are, there are sermons. And I think whenever I did preach in Isaiah, I would say things like, well, here's how one view, here's how one system would look at it. Here's how the other system would look at it. And, you know, th- these are different, two different, very different. Th- there are two approaches to it. I'm now much more convinced that you cannot just go from literal to spiritual and figurative and in the very same book just because you don't like <laughs> you don't like the literal fulfillment. Well, a literal fulfillment would be this has to happen for the nation of Israel. This has never happened for the nation of Israel. So this would require something in the future like, I don't know, a millennial kingdom. Well, I don't like that. That's too dispensational. I don't like it. So I'm just going to reject it. It's not about being dispensational. It's not about being pre-milled. Who cares the titles you give it? It's about being consistent in your hermeneutic. I say this all the time. Eschatology is not a debate about end times. Eschatology is a debate about hermeneutics. What is the hermeneutical system or the hermeneutical method you are going to apply to passages that have implications to your eschatology. If you hold to a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, and you do so like chapter after chapter in Isaiah, and then all of a sudden you turn the page and like, nope, that can't be literal. That's figurative. And now all of a sudden you insert the church, you insert spiritual Israel, and you remove national Israel, and you remove actual land, and you remove actual restoration, and you remove you know, all the, then, then you've got a problem. Now I've got no problem when I look at some of those promises, promises asking myself, okay, was that fulfilled in history? Was that fulfilled coming back from the Babylonian captivity? Was that, and if I can find a fulfillment, then by all means, don't look for a future one, but you still have to use a literal hermeneutic that it would have to be literally fulfilled unless the text clearly indicates it's not using language that indicates anything literal. It's that it's screaming at you that it's something figurative. Then you have to figure out what the figurative thing is, and you've got to figure out, you've got to explain why you just inserted the church or whatever you insert into it. So I think there's a very important just hermeneutical lesson to learn. Then the next big lesson that I want you to just take away, and I don't want to go long this evening because I've already given you an hour and 20 minutes, okay? And so, yeah, and again, I feel bad for that. I do want us to think about this very important spiritual principle. We have Ahaz here who looks to the Assyrians as the source for his deliverance, as the source of his salvation. He's looking for a political alliance to save him. He's looking at a military confederacy to help him out. He's got this confederacy. He's like, no, you join us. And he's like, no, I'm not going to join you. I'm going to join, I'm going to conf- basically create a confederacy with the Assyrians and have them help me out, right? He's, he, it's all about basically politics and nations and military alliance. And he looks to the Assyrians to save him, which ultimately leads to pain, suffering, and destruction. The spiritual principle here just screams at us. And I think it's important. What do we look to, to save us? What wrong things do we look to save us? We know the church in 2021 has definitely looked to politicians, political alliance, political confederacies to supposedly save us 
make the world better again, make America great again. And I will say, I've said it a million times, politicians will use you and then lose you. They will use the church and then discard the church as soon as they need to if the church will no longer provide them the power, the position, or the money. We do not look to politics to save us. We don't look to human reason to save us. We don't look up to how clever we are. We look to Emmanuel, God with us. We look to Christ. That is where salvation is found. The Christmas story is about looking to Christ as our Savior, as the one who came to save us. We don't look for, we don't need another Savior. We, we, now, it, we may look to other things, thinking, you know, we, we sometimes may look to our good works. We may look to our efforts. We may look to our ability to do this or that. What are those counterfeit saviors, those counterfeit salvations that we have a tendency to rely, rely on? Now, I know we know the church answer, right? The church answer is no. I believe that I'm saved by, you know, grace alone, faith alone, because Christ alone. Everyone says those words, but do we truly believe that we are saved by the imputed righteousness of Christ, the finished work of Christ, or do we always try to find, well, I need a little of this, I need a little of that, I need a little of this, I need a little of that, I need this, I need that. I'll just, I had a discussion this morning with a friend in Nebraska. He's working on a series on repentance. And I was like, well, I, I was trying to warn him. I'm like, now you better be careful. You're going in with a view of repentance that your church doesn't hold to. And he's like, well, our, our, our statement of faith gives the, the definition of repentance that you gave, basically. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not what your pastor preaches because your pastor clearly says that if you don't repent, you're not saved. And the only genuine repentance is a repentance that leads to obeying the Sermon on the Mount. I, I, if you go back to our series on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm reviewing sermons from this church that my friend attends to in Nebraska. That's literally what it says. The Sermon on the Mount tests the genuineness of your repentance. And if you don't obey the Sermon on the Mount, your repentance is not genuine. Therefore, you're not saved. So what saves you, I mean, there's no way to get around it, even though their statement of faith which sounds completely orthodox and biblical, the preaching clearly states that the way you're saved is by obeying the Sermon on the Mount. And I will argue no one has ever kept the Sermon on the Mount other than the one who preached it. Okay, everyone else falls short. The Sermon on the Mount is to show us our, our need of the Savior, of the one who preached it, because we will never keep it. But see, if you go with that idea, you're looking for a, you're looking for a counterfeit Savior. You're looking for your obedience you're looking for your good deeds. And I think we find we look to a lot of counter uh, saviors. And I think that this is a good time in Isaiah 7 where we're trying to figure out all the doctrine, all the theology, all the church history, all the hermeneutics. I, by all means, we need to do that. And we spent an hour and 20 minutes doing that last night. I feel bad that I didn't have a chance to do more like, hey, guys, this is a time for us to really look at our lives and ask ourselves, are we truly trusting in the finished work of Christ? Are we looking for these counterfeit saviors? What are we looking to? What are we looking to? Right? Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they looked to fig leaves to cover themselves. Right? We all look for all kinds of things. The only thing we can look to is Christ. The only, hey, Ahaz, you need to look to me. I'm going to take care of it. And Ahaz is like, no, I'm going to look to the Assyrians. Okay. 
You look to the Assyrians. I'm going to offer the ultimate sign of what we need to look to, which is Emmanuel, God with us, my son who will take upon human flesh and die to save sinners from their sin and to save them from from my wrath. That's the ultimate sign of salvation. But you go ahead and look to, you go ahead and look to the Assyrians. You go ahead. See what that brings you. Pain, suffering, and destruction. And you can see how bad it's going to get, right? Um, In fact, I'm just going to read this from different translations. I'm just going to read this from different translations here. I'm going to go to uh, biblehub.com. And I'm going to go to uh, Isaiah 7, 17. I'm just going to look at, read it from a, a couple of translations just so we can see the power of what's happening here. Isaiah 7, verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. New Living Translation. Then the Lord will bring things on you, your nation and your family, unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such a day has not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. All right, King James, the Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. That's what you're looking to? It's like God knows what he's looking to. God knows why he rejected the sign. He knows. He's looking to the Assyrians. Well, guess what? He that, That's what he gets. And then you can, I, I was going to go, you, we could go to, we could go to, Chronicles and Kings to look at some others, but go to verse 18. Uh, In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta and Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. New Living Translation. And the day, the in that day, the Lord will whistle for the army of Southern Egypt and for the army of Assyria. They will swarm around you like flies and bees. That doesn't sound like a good thing. When, when the armies that are coming against you are going to be described as an army of uh, basically flies and bees, that sounds like a frightening, scary thing that if you, I don't know if you've ever been caught in a swarm of bees, uh, I'll never forget the, a crazy story. I, I worked, you see, I worked in the first floor of the hospital. And at that particular time, I was uh, dealing with referral management. We, we were, we, our job was to ensure that referrals were being placed for people to get specialty care. So I was in referral management. And all of a sudden, I'll never forget it. We're in a military hospital and we are told you need to evacuate the hospital immediately. There is a swarm of African killer bees in the dental clinic. And I'm like, what? And the world is, we have to evacuate the hospital and literally the entire dental, that was, that which when I say dental clinic, it basically took up a whole section of one of the floors of the hospitals. It was a massive thing because it was responsible for all the dental care for all the active duty on the military base. The whole thing was just being, it was swarming with African killer bees here in, and the base was located here in Abilene, Texas, Dias Air Force Base. And we literally had to evacuate the hospital. It was insane. And I can't even remember how many bees were ultimately killed. It was crazy. Well, I can't imagine an army being likened unto that. That's a fearful, frightening thing. And if you've ever seen a swarm of bees or been caught in it or just watch, you know, 
there was movies and a lot of movies in the 70s about killer bees. Yeah. So I remember seeing those movies and then I was actually at work when it happened. Good thing, though, I was nowhere close to it. But uh, Isaiah 7, 19, they will all come in, come and settle in the steep ravines and the crevices and the rocks and all the uh, thorn bushes and all the water holes. The New Living uh, Translation, they will come in vast hordes, settle in the fertile areas, and also in the desolate valleys, caves, and thorny places. In other words, they're they're coming in and they're taking over everything. They're coming in and taking over everything. That doesn't sound like a a very pleasant uh, situation. Uh, New International Version uh, of Isaiah 7.20. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates rivers, the king of Assyria, to shave your heads and private parts, and to cut off your beards also. I mean, this absolutely horrific language. Let me say, all counterfeit saviors, that's what they do. They come in, they use you, they will destroy you, and you will be destroyed by them. Every false savior you turn to, that's where you will end up destroyed. You will end up suffering. There are people who turn to the false salvation of works. They turn to the false messages of false prophets. They're, they're, uh, the church, in many cases, wants to save things by lo- turning to politics and human reasoning and human solutions. All of that will ultimately destroy you. Ultimately, we have to avoid false saviors, false teachers, false Christ, false solutions. We must always rely on God's solution, God's salvation, God's Savior, even if it doesn't make any sense to us or even if we do not like it. That's the practical message that we need to take away from this passage. Christmas reminds us that we only have one Savior, that is Jesus Christ, the little babe born of a virgin whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. He will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the season not to just celebrate the coming of Jesus, but to ensure that we are looking only to him and him alone for salvation. That's the practical message from this. I didn't get to that last night. I wish I would have. Sometimes you preach a sermon and it's good. Sometimes you preach a sermon and it's bad. And obviously last night was one out of 10 stars. Okay, that's how bad it was. But I hope that the history that we went through last night, I hope the context provided was beneficial. I truly, 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 truly mean that. I do hope it was beneficial for some. And also it was, it's also I got caught between, there was about an 80% chance last night that I thought we were going to be doing podcasting and not an in-person service. So I had already thought, oh, I'm just going to come to the church, take kind of the the notes that had been sent to me by different individuals, and we were going to just kind of work through those notes. That was going to be like, you know, part four. Then part five, I was going to go, okay, now let's work on verse 16. And then part seven was going to be like, okay, now let's work on uh, 17. Like I was going to do multiple parts because I thought it was just going to be podcasting Wednesday afternoon. But once it realized that we were going to have an in-person service, then I had to kind of switch in the gears and go, wait, now I got to, I can't just start there because now I'm back with a different audience and I, and not all of them maybe have followed everything. So then I had to kind of switch back and then I got caught in between both and 
well, ended up messing up. So, but there is the practical lesson. So the, the main thing is in the midst of all of my poor attempts to handle Isaiah 7, let's not overlook the powerful message contained in it. Whenever a pastor gets in the way of the powerful message, that's a bad thing. There's a powerful message here. Stop looking to everything else. The church turns to everything else to save us, our own reasoning, politics. We sometimes end up with a false gospel and a false salvation. We need to look to Christ. And I messed that message up a little bit. I think there was an appropriate time to get to that because we needed to look at all the history and the, and the questions and the confusion and the timelines. All of that is very important. I just needed to find a way to mix the, the covering of one with the second part and then do so in about 50 minutes. And I ended up going an hour and 20. But I'm just glad I have a church that was like, hey, we started. I mean, I, I don't know if you could hear the people last night, but multiple times I've said, we started late. So in other words, it's okay. Just we started late, keep going. Uh, and that that is awesome because most pastors would probably lose their job if they preached for an hour and 20 minutes, okay? So, uh, and it's probably why our church is so small <laughs> because most people wouldn't tolerate that. But uh, I hope it was beneficial. So there we have it. We're still going to try to do some work on chapter eight. We may do that Sunday for Sunday school. We may do that for Sunday for Sunday school. Um, but uh, yeah, there you have it. And if you have any questions, thoughts, uh, anything, you can email those to me at newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. And uh, we will definitely make time for it. But I think we will try to do a little work on Isaiah chapter 8. What I may do is tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday, we may do a little bit of work on Matthew 1, 18 and following, and we'll go to the Bible study curriculum. We'll go and we'll do a little work there, maybe just to add to that. Maybe almost, we may even make it a little separate, like a mini Bible study exercise, just to look at it. So if you haven't looked at the curriculum, this would be a good time to do so. For those still working on Isaiah 7, by all means, if I've messed something up or you think I didn't get something right, let me know. Um, I still want to go through everyone's notes. I still, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. Maybe I'll do at least one episode because I would like to go through uh, Heather's notes and uh, everyone else's notes because uh, they did such a great job. Uh, I should What I should have done last night is just preached Heather's notes. That's what I should have done. I should have just said, hey, she, someone else wrote my sermon tonight and just done, that's what I should have done. And then it would have been uh, probably better. And then Heather could not have given me one out of 10 stars. She would have had to have given me 10 because it would have been her notes. What she could have said is the notes were good. Your delivery was garbage. I guess she could have done. I guess she could have done that. But uh, no, yes, uh, that's what I probably should have done. But there you have it. Isaiah seven, some very, 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 uh, very important lesson. And hopefully you don't. It's so easy when we get into these chapters where there's so much confusion and complexity. uh, Maybe. Maybe uh, we have a tendency to get so caught up in some of the confusion and complexity that we can't overlook the very practical message. And there's a very practical message that's very applicable, not only in 2021, we know what's coming in 2022. We get the midterm elections, and then we know what's coming in 2024. So the whole political mess inside the church is only going to get worse. And they're looking for a savior. 
that's basically the Assyrians. I think there's a practical lesson there. All right. All right. Thank you. So everyone have a great night. I'm, I'm probably, I may try to do one more thing. I, I want to, what time is it? Ah, oh, it's already six o'clock. Well, I may not be able to do another thing. We'll see. If you get a notification that I'm back on the air, then I'm back on the air. If you don't get a notification, it's because I'm in my car driving back home. All right. So everyone have a great night. God bless.